Well, I do invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. If you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find that on page 555. Ecclesiastes 5 on 555. Knowing our great God and his wisdom, that was not an accident. I don't know if it's significant in any way, but it's not an accident. We're going to look this morning at the first seven verses. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? When dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word to us this morning. Well, you notice this morning, I haven't done it in a while, but I'm wearing my robe, and I know that some of you really like to see me in a robe, and and others have different opinions about it. Um, I would like to tell you that I'm wearing this robe because I am preaching on being reverent in worship and, and maybe wearing a robe brings a bit more formality to the service and maybe a little more awe. I don't know, but in, in truth, uh, I've gained some weight and my jacket was too tight and I thought, you know, I'm just going to wear the robe this morning. So, so much for reverence in worship. Well, Solomon is turning our attention to reverence in worship this morning. Uh, He's enjoining us to be reverent in worship. And that word reverent uh, means awe or deep respect. And the the Hebrew word that is used there, it's actually verse 7, uses the word fear in the English. The Hebrew word is yareh and it's usually, you know, quite often, I guess probably the majority of the time is translated in English as fear, but I think, you know, when that, that word fear conjures up maybe terror or frightened, being frightened of something, um, here's a better definition or maybe a broader definition. It means to revere, to venerate, to show profound respect for one that borders on fear of the object. Uh, a, a real sense of awe and respect. And that's what Solomon is, is talking about here. He's talking about when we come before God, we should come with an awe and a respect and, and re- recognizing that our God is a great God. As the writer of Hebrews puts it, our God is a consuming fire. So Solomon is touching on these things that really do 
fly in the face of our culture today. You know, I wanted to give you an illustration of reverence, and I, and I was finding it hard to find an, an illustration of reverence because we live in such an irreverent and disrespectful culture today. Now, my first inclination is to say, you know, think about how we might behave if we were invited to go to the White House and have a meeting with the president. You know, I'd like to think that most of us would put on our best clothes and clean up and, and come and, and be respectful. Uh, we would be on our best behavior. But obviously, um, you know, with the political climate we're in, I'm not so sure that many people would, would feel that way or would actually be respectful if they went and visited the president, whoever the president might be. Because we obviously no longer hold the office in such high regard as we once did. And we regularly hear of candidates judged on whether they are presidential or not. And that kind of illustrates the point because what we're looking for, what we'd like to see, and which we don't see in many of our politicians of the day, is uh, someone that, that hits us with a sense of respectability. Um, we want someone that inspires respect in the way they carry themselves, in the way they appear uh, in public. Now, why do we act this? Why do we? Why has our culture shifted into this way where we are more irreverent, disrespectful? Um, we can look at social media and just see the way that people behave towards one another. We've lost any respect for one another and others, and for institutions and so forth. But it really isn't, I mean, I wouldn't say that social media caused this attitude. Social media is just reflecting the attitude that we have as a culture and what we see on Twitter, which is still of the devil, I think, uh, as I said last week. It, it, it reflects the heart of our culture where we see such vitriol and anger between people. And, and it's largely due because in the culture we live, the Western culture we live, is a culture of what philosophers call expressive individualism, expressive individualism. And you can look that term up on the Internet, and you can, there's some good articles on it. And it describes, it's a, it's a way of describing where we are as a culture today. There's actually a good article on the Gospel Coalition website written by Trevin Wax. If you'd like to go see that, he explains what it is. But here's some of the things that he says, and he quotes some other authors that talk about it. Expressive individualism is the idea that the highest good is individual freedom, happiness, self-definition, and self-expression. So we live in a culture where the greatest value that our culture has is for, for each individual to be free, to be whoever they want to be, to do whatever they want to do to self-express however they decide they want to self-express. And, and to break all cultural norms in doing so is perfectly legitimate. So that means that traditional views, traditions, religions, any received wisdom that is passed down from generation to generation, regulations and social ties that restrict individual freedom all of these things 
All of these things must be reshaped, deconstructed, or destroyed. If anything stands in the way of a person being able to be whoever they want to be, to be true to themselves, whatever that might entail, if, if that is opposed in any way, then that institution or individual is destroyed at worst, or at least ridiculed at best. The primary social ethic, the way that we think you know, the most valuable and the, and, the, and the highest way we can act in the culture in which we live, is that we should be tolerant of everyone's self-defined quest for individual freedom and self-expression. And any deviation from this ethic of tolerance is considered dangerous and must not be tolerated. So you see what's happening is individual choice and individual self-expression trumps everything. It's more important than anything to follow your heart or to find yourself or be true to yourself or you be you. I remember Reebok uh, probably in the 90s had a campaign for their tennis shoes and it said, Reebok lets you be you. So if everybody went out and bought a pair of Reeboks, we'd all be wearing the same shoes. So I don't know how that makes you be you. It just makes you like everybody else. But that's the value of the culture, that, that we want to be able to express ourselves and get ourselves out there the way that we have uh, decided in our heart uh, that's the way that we want to be, and we want everybody to recognize that. We want to find ourselves and express it. And many a Disney movie over the past couple of decades has followed that plot line. You think of The Little Mermaid. I was subjected to this stuff as a father. I kind of like The Little Mermaid, but when you think about it, uh, we've got a, a young girl, young girl mermaid, uh, who is being raised as a traditional mermaid, and she wants to go be a human on land. And her father, Neptune, you know, she's the, the, the princess. Uh, he doesn't want to have anything to do with the people up there. You know, he's under the sea. You know, that's, that's where it's all about. But she's constantly wanting to be human. And she's looking at human products that have gotten dumped into the sea and so forth and so on. And, and anyway, you see the story. She is on a quest to be free from the traditional norms for mermaids. And so she ends up actually becoming a human at the end, and the father, Neptune, lovingly accepts his daughter on earth, and everything is blissful in the end in true Disney fashion. But it is just playing out this narrative that our culture has of expressive individualism. This is the air that we breathe. You know, It doesn't matter how old we are. This has been building for the past 200 years or so. And it really has accelerated since the 1960s. But this is the air that we breathe. We're constantly in the middle of this philosophy of life. It's informing us. It's, it's shaping us. It's influencing us in imperceptible ways. It's like being in a room where there's pollution and there's this more pollution is coming in, and some of you who have been there a long time can kind of remember what fresh air felt like and smelled like, uh, but those who are younger don't know any different. There's always been pollution in the air, but it's gotten worse, and it's just the air that we breathe, and, and so 
many of us are, are not even perceiving that there is pollution in the air. But this philosophy of life, the way that our culture is, 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 the, is the world in which we're living, and it, and it has an influence in us, and it comes into the church. What Solomon is telling us is really good for our day and time because we have been influenced by this expressive individualism, and we, even believers, are bringing it into the church. And here's how we do it. We, we come to church with a self-centered, self-serving attitude. What's in it for me? Why should I go to this church and not that church? What, what is uh, the guiding principle to what church I choose? You know, it should be that we're looking for a biblical church and one that worships according to God's word. And so, you know, many, some other factors there. Is the gospel being preached? But too often, come to, coming to church is just, is it going to help me reach my full potential? Is it going to entertain me and make me happy? Now, I want you to reach your full potential in church. And uh, I think the way that we're doing things is the best way we can help people reach their full potential in church. But that shouldn't be the primary purpose of coming, especially to worship on Sunday morning. Because worship on Sunday morning is not about you. It's about worshiping God. Bringing your worship to the one God. Or another attitude that we bring in is, is that we, we just go through the motions of going to church. We go to church... We check the box each week in order to feel good about ourselves. See, it's serving us in a way that it can make us feel good or like we're moral or that we're somewhat spiritual. See, it's, it really is gets back to just being self-centered about church and about God. Now, what we see is the result of this kind of thinking that has crept into the church is that there's church hopping. You know, when our felt needs aren't met, we'll go to the next place and then the next place. Or that worship is all about entertainment. From time to time, friends will post these absurd absurd worship services where there's actually a circus on. I saw a worship service where the preacher and the church had had a circus on stage for his sermon. He had had wild animals in cages on, on, on the church stage with him. And this, I think it's the same preacher. He rode in one time on a roller coaster. They had constructed a roller coaster in the sanctuary. And, of course, it went with the theme of his sermon or what have you. But I don't know how anybody thinks that's entertaining. That's just weird to me. But some people love that sort of thing. See, this is worldly worship that values relevance over being biblical. See, yes, we should be relevant, and I think the gospel is always relevant. The Bible is always relevant to us. So we're not irrelevant if we don't kowtow to the culture and try to be entertaining in in worldly ways. But a lot of people have fallen into that. And see, in these scenarios, God is just a means to an end. He's just there to serve us as we come to worship week in and week out. When we behave in such a manner, we're just using God for our own self-fulfillment. And we've bought into the lie of the culture that it's all about self-fulfillment, expressive individualism. Well, this is not new. 
Mankind is naturally self-centered. It's part of our sinful DNA. The people in Solomon's day, obviously Solomon wouldn't be saying this if it wasn't a problem in his day, that people were coming to church in an irreverent manner. Uh, They had lost their reverence for God. And even before that, prophet Malachi wrote a scathing prophecy against the people of God. He says in Malachi chapter 1, a son, this is God speaking through Malachi, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. He literally says, it would be better for you not to come and serve in the temple than to continue to do this. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations." Well, Malachi is addressing the priest there, and, uh, and it really is convicting to myself as a preacher, someone who leads the service, leads the worship of God, but as well it should be uh, something for all of us. We're all called to come on Sunday mornings to bring an offering of praise and worship to God. We don't bring animals, of course. We have Christ who is the one true sacrifice, the Lamb of God who's taken away the sin of the world. But we are come to bring an offering of praise, a sacrifice of worship to the Lord. But do we bring that which is weak and not thought out and not intentional or that is half-hearted or any-hearted at all? That's what Solomon is talking about. I want you to think about, and this is really where we get to the gospel part, the good news, because that really shows us the problem that we have. Uh, but we need to remember the good news, that, that the Lord has provided a way for us to come into his presence. He actually desires for us to have a relationship with him, to come before him in worship. 
We have numerous calls to worship. That's why we have a call to worship every Sunday morning because we want to be reminded that God invites us to come and worship Him. It's a great privilege for us to be able to do so. When Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, they had the privilege before they sinned of being in the presence of God. They, they knew the sound of the Lord walking in the garden where they lived. God spoke to them face to face. I don't know how that worked with, with God being a spirit and not having a body like men, but, but they had an unhindered relationship with their Creator. And of course, sin broke that. They were expelled from the garden and, and, and humanity was plunged into sin, but yet God did not quit reaching out to human beings. He, he sent Noah. He, he, he calls Noah. He, he put his grace upon Noah that he might save a people for himself. He called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees and said, I will be your God and you will be my people, you and your children, your children's children. And he's continued to pursue a people for himself until he showed the greatest act of that when he sent his only son. God himself became flesh and he, he laid down his life and sacrificed himself and bore the punishment for our sin so that we could have communion with God. The price, the price that was paid for us to be able to come on Sunday morning to worship God was a great price that we didn't pay, but God himself paid for us. When Christ died on the cross, the, the, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was torn in two, and the place that only the high priest could come once a year on the Day of Atonement was open so that anybody could go in there. And it was symbolic of what Christ had accomplished on the cross. You know, now, through the great sacrifice of Christ, we have access. We can come boldly before the throne of grace or confidently before the throne of grace knowing that we will not be destroyed, but we will be welcomed in by our loving Heavenly Father. As you consider the, the cost of that, the price that was, was, was paid for the privilege of being able to know God and to come into relationship with Him and to know that where two or three are gathered together that I will be with them. I will be in their presence. What a privilege it is for us to be able to come in worship. And that's why Solomon says what he says. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. You know, don't just stumble in. Don't you know, be unaware of the path, but be careful when you come. And I don't mean be careful in the sense of, you know, like be afraid, but be intentional, be prepared, be ready to worship. Have a heart for worship when you come to the house of, house of God to worship, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Come with a, a quiet, reverent heart, ready to hear. He's going to talk a lot about hearing in this passage. Ready to hear and to listen, and that implies to obey. We're coming to hear from God as we praise the Lord. 
What is the sacrifice of fools? Well, the Bible illustrates that in many ways, and I think one of the best is that the, uh, the parable that Jesus tells, I don't know if it's a parable, maybe it actually happened, but uh, where you have the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple. And the Pharisee is praying to the Lord, and he's saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I do all these wonderful things. I tithe and I do this and I do that and, and I'm a good guy. I thank you that I'm not like this guy over here, this tax collector, who's a, a reject and sinner. Thank you that I'm not like him. Well, that is the sacrifice of fools because Jesus said, you know, the one that went home, one, the one who went home justified was that tax collector who was beating his breast and saying, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. That was a good sacrifice. The Pharisee's sacrifice was the sacrifice of fools. He didn't know that he was doing evil. He was completely self-involved. Back to what we were talking about earlier. It was all about him. It wasn't about the Lord at all or his mercy or his grace. He goes on, verse 2, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Now, that, that's simply, he's talking about the fact that don't, you know, come with a reverence. Come ready to hear and obey. Come before God with, with a, a sense of awe. And, you know, if you go to, well, if you go to see the president, I would trust that most of you here would go in and you probably wouldn't be the first to speak and your words would be few, and you'd like to hear what he has to say. The same is true of God. We come humbly with few words. Why? Because God is in heaven and, and you are on earth. Now, that doesn't negate what I said at the very beginning, that God is everywhere, uh, or the catechism, the children's catechism that says God is everywhere. What, uh, writers, what Solomon is writing here is, is to, to get us to see that God is in heaven and we are on earth, that, that there is a distinction between God the creator and us the creatures. The creator-creature distinction. God is great. He's holy. He's set apart from us who are sinners. And that's what he's, he's saying. Our words should be few because God is holy. And we're not. We should come to listen, humbly reverent before him. You know, the word holy means, we, we th often think of it as being pure, but it actually means set apart. Something is holy, it's different. It, it's not normal. When Moses reverently came before God, or he saw the burning bush and he came up to it, God said, remove your sandals because the place you're standing is holy ground. And so Moses removed his shoes because it was holy ground. It wasn't just any old ground. It was very special ground because God was there. And so there was, you, you behaved differently in that holy space. It was set apart for this special theophany or appearance of God. And that's what holiness is. God is holy. He is set apart. He's not like us. Though we bear his image, he's still not like us. There's a distinction. And we need to remember that distinction. 
We too often want to treat God like he's our big buddy upstairs, but that's just irreverent. He's our loving heavenly father, but we should have a, a good fatherly respect for our great and loving God. And then he goes on to say in verse 4, when you vow a vow to God, do not let, delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. The people in Solomon's day were obviously promising to do one thing if God would do this and God did this and then they reneged on their promise to pay their vow. Lord, I'll give you a sacrifice for my flock. You know, I, I promise to give you this. I pray, Lord, that you would you know, do this wonderful thing for me. Well, the wonderful thing happened and then they looked at their flocks and said, I don't want to give them my best. I'll give them one of these, these, these lambs that I don't really care about or that are blind or lame or have some defect. Let's get rid of that one. Or they didn't do it at all. How many times have we made that same promise to God? Lord, if you'll get me out of this jam, I'll, I'll do this. I'll go to church every Sunday. I'll... And, of course, the Lord delivers on that, and yet we don't fulfill our vow. There are other vows we make. We make, we, we make vows in church to, to our wives and to our husbands. We make vows when we get married. And how many people are breaking those vows in our world today. We shouldn't be hasty to make a vow. He says it would be better not to make a vow than to break the vow that you make before God. So yes, we should be quiet and let our words be few and not let our mouths get us into trouble. You know, it's better, for, it's better to keep your mouth closed uh, than, and, and not let anybody know that you're a fool than to say, start speaking and prove it. And that's sometimes we can do that in worship. So let us be reverent in worship, especially as we think about our great God and how we should have a reverence and awe for him. And that reverence and awe is not just because he's so powerful, but that he's so loving. This powerful God that, that didn't owe us anything, loved us, cared for us, and paid the ultimate price so that we could come into his presence so that we could have a relationship with him. But let us always remember that he is God, and we are not. And that distinction needs to be maintained. Yes, we're welcomed, we're loved, we, we don't have to hold back anything in worship, but God is other than us, he's holy, and let us have that proper respect for him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you again for your word and thank you, Lord, for this reminder to us that we fall into our own selfish ways sometimes. We pray that you would forgive us, our own selfish motives for doing things. But Lord, I pray that we would all be really captured by your love, captured by your great sacrifice that you made for us, by all the blessings that we enjoy in our lives. Even, even in the midst of our difficulties, Lord, you care for us and you, we know that you're, you've promised to be with us and you're concerned with everything that we're going through. Thank you for that. Lord, help us to respond appropriately with reverence and awe and fear and, and service and love. Lord, we pray that as we prayed in our prayer of confession that you would fill us with Christ, fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord, we pray that the things of this world that so easily draw us away from you, that we would put those things aside and that we would find our greatest good in knowing you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.